Hey there, good people in crypto land. I'm Matt Lysing, and this is my podcast, Decent People. Welcome back to the conversation. On today's show, I talked with Ben Mills. He is the co-founder of the Mezzo Network, which is trying to help people move their money into crypto and then take it out again. It's called on-ramping and off-ramping. And for anyone who's gone through this process, you can know it can be a real headache. Um, ben has a deep history in payments. Uh, he was at Venmo and Braintree uh, for many years and helped design uh, you know, the payment methods and, and uh, processes we use when we're splitting a check at a restaurant with our friends or um, you know, sending somebody some birthday money. So he's trying to bring those lessons that he learned um, in TradFi into crypto with Mezzo. We got deep into the payments sector, uh, felt like a payments palooza, and then, you know, talked more about Mezzo and what they're really trying to do is uh, focus on security and uh, risk on the back end um, where so that you, when you want to get money into, say, uh, uh, your wallet, that you don't have to wait uh, three to 10 days like you might have to on Coinbase. So uh, it was a really interesting conversation, uh, and they are going to be launching to new users uh, in August. So by the time you hear this, it should be available for uh, folks to check out. Um, and I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Thank you very much. Hey, Ben, how you doing? Good. How are you today, Matt? I'm great. Thank you so much. I uh, really appreciate you coming on the podcast. I'm really excited to talk to you because... You guys at um, Meso Networks are kind of addressing one of the big sticking points uh, and pain points, I think, in crypto, which is it's it's difficult to get your U.S. dollars or your euros or your yen uh, into the digital world where you can then buy Ether or Bitcoin or DeFi um, protocol tokens. Um, it's it's called on ramping, uh, and then off ramping is the opposite, where you you know you change your crypto back into fiat. Um, good for you guys. And I was wondering, you know, if maybe you could just tell me a little bit, like, because I think everyone understands, you know, you have to connect a bank account to your crypto account. And like, maybe you could just, we could start there with, um, you, you tell me a little bit about where the idea came from and, and sort of like, w was it a pain point in your personal life or you and your co-founder or how did it all kind of come about? Yeah. Um, so um, my co-founder and I have been active in crypto for the last couple of years. He, he got pretty deeply involved, um, I think, in the like 2019, 2020 period. And I uh, came in a little bit after that. Um, and I think both of us uh, at multiple points had felt the pain of whether it's, you know, trying to get into a, a hot NFT mint or, or, or you know, um, buy at the right time uh, across um, a decentralized, decentralized exchange and needing to get money into our self-custodial wallet. Um, and really the only way to do that was using Coinbase or some other centralized exchange, which just felt both like just annoying uh, and, and just a lot of friction. Also just like very risky and unsafe. Um, at least back then, the common pattern was you know, you buy um, Ether, USDC, Sol uh, on Coinbase, then you copy and paste your address into Coinbase and hope you didn't make a typo. Uh, and then eventually you get into your wallet. And on top of that, like, you know, you're waiting uh, 
usually between three to 10 days for the actual payment to clear on the centralized exchange, which adds even more delay. Um, so th- it was definitely a personal pain point. And as we, we really got uh, built our conviction in crypto and both were, were interested in, in really kind of going in full time, w- we realized there was just this great overlap between the experience both of us had spending, you know, 10 plus years working in fintech and payments uh, and this pretty clear problem that needs to be solved for crypto. Um, so, so that was the, the genesis of it. And then I think what really kind of pushed us to like accelerate and go all in on Mezzo was r- when we started to look very closely at what are the solutions that exist today or who else is really trying to solve this problem. And there's a lot of great teams working on, on and off ramps. But we, um, and this is, was especially true back um, in uh, like 2021, 2022, but that we were seeing a lot of teams not applying some of the best practices and lessons learned in fintech over the last 10 years to this problem. And we think there's a lot of, of improvements to be had, both in the end user experience, fees, and the integration that uh, developers can build into their apps. Um, once we apply a lot of those lessons. So yeah, yeah that, that's a little bit of a mezzo. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I think it's one of the ways that crypto still doesn't live up to the hype. You know, you hear about hmm. um, almost, you know, instantaneous transactions and, you know, this and that about sending money around the world. But then you go and like you said, okay, I've, I've just, you know, connected my bank to Coinbase, but it's now like five days later, I'm going to be able to like get what I actually, you know, want to do. And and that five day wait, you know, can can be an eternity in crypto. And I was wondering, like the banks, you know, have have really uh, had a checkered past with with uh, wanting their customers to to be involved in the crypto space. Has that changed at all? I know when I was still at Bloomberg News, you know, most of the banks wouldn't touch uh, crypto with a ten foot pole. They've sort of come around, but I'm curious if. That was also something that was driving you and your, your co-founder to to get involved here. Yeah, um, I'd I'd say we've definitely seen improvement, but we're far away from where we need to be. Um, especially when you talk about the large consumer banks like Chase or Wells Fargo, we're seeing them take an incredibly risk-averse approach to crypto. Like, for instance, um, most Chase uh, Chase account holders are blocked from using their debit card with any crypto product, um, which which is just astounding to me, frankly, that like my bank gets to tell me how I get to use my money. Um, I think the a, a lot of this I attribute to uh, really a communication problem. I think a lot of what the banks are scared of is things like, how do we prevent money laundering? How do we keep users safe? Just because this technology is so new. And I think sadly, it got, uh, how did I say this? Like it, I think there was a bad perception, especially in the early days of crypto, that it was primarily used for, you know, illegal activities. And, you know, where we're sitting now, and I think, you know, teams like Chain Analysis have done a great job representing the industry in front of Congress about this, is blockchains are really, I think, the most auditable payment infrastructure that has been created. And a lot of what um, I, I see as the power of crypto when it comes to, you know, the banking and re- regulatory community is it's a better foundation to, to prevent things like money laundering 
to stop um, bad behavior and ultimately keep users safe because of the transparency and neutrality of, of these blockchain networks. So a lot of um, a, what, a lot of what I was doing in um, one of my previous jobs at Venmo was working with regulators and compliance professionals about kind of translating the, the things that we can do with technology to streamline user experience without sacrificing um, uh, the controls to kind of keep users and, and the, the whole ecosystem safe. And we were really successful. I mean, I think there was, um, there was a big push, especially near, near the end of my time at Venmo, to KYC every user. Um, and the, the more we were able to explain the, how sophisticated we could be at risk management, all the different other kind of signals we could use in the background to detect bad or suspicious activity, we were able to get regulators and the com- uh, compliance ecosystem very comfortable with, with our model without requiring kind of traditional full KYC. Uh, and, and that lesson uh, really, or the lesson really took from that was, I think if you are able to kind of translate new and, and potentially scary technology into language that regulators and, and, the, and compliance people understand, you can make a lot of headway uh, and, and get to a solution that actually works for the consumer and works for the ecosystem overall. Um, and so that's a lot of what, what we're trying to do at Mezzo is we spend a lot of time, and I personally spend a lot of my time with regulators, with, with compliance teams, helping them understand you know, where are, you know, crypto, where is crypto very new and very different, but also where is that actually very similar? Like when I um, was first setting out and thinking through how we would build something like Mezzo, the more I looked at it, the more I felt this is, 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 is very close, if not identical to the kind of compliance footprint of something like Venmo. Um, a lot of the same, like, you know, controls and things you need um, you have to put in place to do on and off ramping and a lot of the data and kind of um, a visibility that you would have doing something like Venmo, you also have um, with, with an on and off ramp product. So, I mean, uh, regulation is a very hot topic in crypto and there's certainly very clear uh, areas of, of regulation that we need more clarity on as industry. And a lot of that has to do with securities. But when it comes to things like AML, uh, KYC, et cetera, um, I think crypto is is compatible with all of those laws, um, and in some ways more compatible than TradFi. So yeah. I think there's a lot of uh, we have a lot going for us when it comes to kind of getting the banks to come around. But for right now, um, it is a big pain point, and it's actually one of the things that we've we've uh, changed our perspective on since the beginning was initially, and and we still expect to support card-based uh, on and off ramping, as well as bank-based on and off ramping. But we're now focusing on bank-based or ACH-based on and off ramping initially, because that is the only payment rail where we get to control the full risk decision. When you use a card-based payment, the issuing bank or the consumer's bank gets to make a decision. Um, like, do I approve this transaction or not? And they're running their own risk rules and have their own risk models, et cetera. Um, yeah. it, you know, traditionally that's, that's really just a n- net positive, um, for, for everyone because it's just an added layer of safety. But when it comes to crypto, at least we're, we're sitting right now, we just believe a lot of the banks are, um, are taking the wrong approach. So using ACH allows us to fully own that risk decision, um, which gives us complete control of the user experience, which is critical for what we're trying to do. 
Yeah. And just to um, spell out some of those acronyms, AML is anti-money laundering. Yeah, no problem. Anti-money laundering and KYC is know your customer. So those are two very important banking regulations that uh, retail banks have to um, adhere to. Um, it strikes me though, when you're talking about Venmo or PayPal and you know the, the, uh, the message that was received by regulators about you know how you guys had risk management in the background and, and could handle that, those are all bank to bank transactions. And um, it strikes me that crypto is, is a competing payment rail, right? We're talking about mm -hmm. crypto being a, a, a global payment system that's not under the control of any bank or government or corporation. So I wonder, did you ever get a sense um, or have you ever gotten a sense that some of that resistance to the bank from the banks to allow their customers onto, you know, crypto exchanges and whatnot was just sort of a self-preservation on their part where they're mm -hmm. like, you know, that's a competitor, right? Basically, if you're allowing someone to go on Coinbase and buy a bunch of Bitcoin, you know, they're not going to maybe be using the banking services as much as, as previously. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, it's a good point. Um, and I haven't spent much time with, with the large consumer banks like Chase. So, um, you know, maybe they would have a slightly different perspective. But generally, when it comes to kind of monetization of payments directly, banks are really not, get, are they're, they're getting a pretty small cut of that. The, the real kind of uh, um, market leaders there are the card networks, um, MasterCard, Visa. Amex. So I, um, in, in many ways, especially for smaller banks, I think they see crypto as an opportunity. Um, I think a lot of what um, we've seen, especially the last you know five ten years in fintech, is this tension between banks wanting to pursue alternative payment rails and kind of um, dis uh, take out the the middleman of Visa and Mastercard. Like you know, we saw this with like both what Plaid was trying is doing in terms of making ACH easier, as well as the whole strategy around Zelle, which in many ways is kind of an alternative payment rail, um, which, you know, I think had I think many of the the banks involved in Zelle have aspirations to kind of expand that further. So I think um, I think there's appetite for banks to find ways to kind of get more involved in the flow of funds with payments. And I, I think crypto is potentially one of those ways. Um, yeah. It's also interesting, like the you know the people who I would have expected to reject or try to prevent crypto's ascendance as much as possible would be the card networks. But it's been one of the most surprising things to me is how much the card networks are leaning into crypto. Um, I've spent time with Kai, uh, who's the head of crypto at Visa, and and really the whole crypto team at Visa, and and I've been really impressed. I think they've been pushing on a lot of interesting ideas, and not just the the kind of surface level crypto ideas. I think we've we've probably all seen uh, uh, many examples of, of of TradFi companies trying to adopt crypto, and they're really doing it more at like the surface level. Um, but what like Visa is doing now is you know they're experimenting with L2s. They're digging, um, which are uh, well, I, I assume the audience knows L2s, but uh, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a layer. Is two. it fair? It's something yeah that 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 is. Uh, you know, it's a roll up. It's something that's not, um, every transaction is not going through the, the base layer. So you can do a lot of right. transactions quickly and then they get um, put back on chain once you're done kind of doing it. But what, what is going on at Visa? That you're, why, why do you think that Visa is, um, if, if, you're, if your instinct would be they would want to reject it, but they're embracing it, 
why do you think that is? What do they see about it that um, is leading them to, to, to be experimenting with all this stuff? Uh, I, I don't know for sure. I haven't asked them that directly. Um, my What I would speculate is it's one of the reasons that I'm most excited about crypto, which is it's open permissionless technology that's truly neutral. Um, and so there's, you know, like, like everyone, they, they are trying to figure out, Hey, can we, can we help accelerate this and kind of, um, position ourselves as part of like a foundational part of the ecosystem? Like if they're successful at that, then I think they could potentially have, you know, a great future for years to come. Um, I mean, uh, uh, one of the most impactful moments in fintech history over the last couple of years was in my mind, Apple pay. And like that, the, the card networks were pretty masterful in their ability to kind of maintain their market position by powering something like Apple pay, which then led to kind of the underlying technology, which is called network tokenization. Like that has powered many other new exciting, uh, uh, you know, experiences and products across fintech. Like if that hadn't happened and Apple, which an Apple probably could have pulled off kind of cutting out the card networks, who knows where they would be today. But um, in many ways, that helped kind of further cement them at, in, in their current position. So um, I think there's, you know, I, I, if, if I were Visa, I, I don't really see a downside. I think, you know, the idea of being able to stop crypto at this stage feels like a foolish, uh, a foolish strategy. So um, yeah, spending sure. time to figure out if, you know, can we, can we position ourselves in this kind of new era, I think makes a ton of sense. Yeah. I noticed um, you guys at Meso, um, you're, I guess, I don't know if it's your tagline or whatnot, but you, you say it's fintech built for crypto. And as, as we can tell here, you've got a deep history in fintech. Um, coming from Venmo, your, your co-founder was at PayPal. Um, but what led you there? Like, what, what were you, um, you know, did you always love technology as a kid? Or what was the kind of path that, that set you um, to, to be here talking to me now about, um, you know, crypto rails and, um, ACH payments. <laughs> um, I, I, yeah, I, I was absolutely obsessed with technology from a very young age. I think that like, you know, uh, I vividly remember, I, I forget how old I was, but can like setting up a, like playing a real time strategy game with my friend over the internet for the first time, being on the phone with him and being like, are you seeing what I'm seeing? Like, are, is, am I moving things and you're seeing it on your screen? And it was just mind blowing to me. Uh, and like from a very early age, I just was fascinated with how it all worked. Uh, I, I was like desperate to make my own website in elementary school, which I think I paid with GeoCities. Um, and, and like from there, just, just like tinkered. I think in general, I'm someone who just really likes to tinker. Like I like to play with things. I like to to like, um, you know, figure out how to make things more efficient uh, and improve things. And I also like um, helping other people or like building tools for other people. Um, like, you know, that that looked like when I was in high school, building fun little programs or like programs to help with homework on like TI-83s or, you know, in, um, in like college and late high school, building little um, like web apps to help either like facilitate games my friends and I are playing or just for other reasons. So I think that that was really my entry point. Um, and then I think um, especially when I was kind of getting into college, this would have been in the like mid 2000s. Um, mm -hmm. the, the internet was like in this perfect 
period for me where it was widespread enough that like almost every business was like, Hey, I need a website or I need to upgrade my website. But it was so new that like no one really knew what they were doing. And so that, yeah. that created a situation for me where like even in high school, I started um, contracting for local businesses, making websites. Um, and then throughout college, I, I really just worked. Like I, I went to a college that was uh, um, uh, like a kind of a, a liberal arts slash like art school in downtown Chicago called Columbia College. And one of the reasons I really liked it was it was in downtown Chicago, which gives me access to a lot of companies that I could, you know, contract at or work at. And the way their schedule was set up is I could set up my classes to do, to go to school for, uh, for three days a week, which gave me a bunch of time to do side projects and work. Um, because what was obvious to me even before I started college is all this stuff is moving so fast that it's, I don't need, I don't need to learn how to make websites in college. I need to learn other things that will help me make websites. And, and primarily, I just need to do work and just do the repetitions and try things and build. Um, and so I think that gave me a great opportunity to do that. Yeah, if I, if I had scheduled my college classes for three days a week, I think I would have used my extra time to go surfing and party with my friends. So <laughs> there's, there's that. Oh, I definitely uh, did not use all the time productively, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Were your parents into technology or was that something that kind of, or was this all on your own? No, um, neither of my, I think both of my parents are curious. Like I think they're very open to new technology, but um, I would, I would definitely not describe either of them as very like tech focused. Um, uh, so I don't, I don't really know where that came from. I think it was just the, the, you know, the proximity to technology, Like they, they were very quick to get a personal computer. So I had like, you know, for most of my childhood, we had like some form of personal computer at home. Um, and so I think that is really what opened the door for me. So you said you went to college in downtown Chicago. Were you, um, did you grow up in Illinois or in the Midwest? Yeah. I grew, so I grew up in, in the suburbs of Chicago, um, which is where most of my family uh, and my wife, uh, as family is from. Okay, cool. So once you're, you know, in college and making websites for folks and upgrading them, like, did you have a path of what you thought you wanted to do? Or, or was there a moment where um, kind of fintech kind of caught your eye? So one, one other important detail about me is I am, I'm a terrible student. Uh, it's very, I have a very hard time, like doing things that I'm not excited in. So I, mm. I, I did very badly in high school college, I ended up doing a lot better at because I had a lot more control of what I, I got to study. Mm -hmm. um, but because of my experience in high school, and and due to like a misconception of, of what, it, what it meant to be a programmer, um, through most of high school and in my early part of college, I really thought that I wasn't smart enough to be a programmer. I was like, I'm not good at math, therefore I can't program. So I was much more focused on user experience, design, interface design, that was what, what really captivated me. Um, and it, uh, I think if I look back, really what I was passionate about was product or like product, what I think some people might call product management today, which is like the intersection of all those things, like the intersection of design, business, um, UX, engineering, all of that. But um, luckily during my time in college, I got enough exposure to programming where I realized like I was just wrong. And actually I really enjoy programming. 
And that led me down a path to being like, okay, I like I want to build, but like for me, the type of things I want to build, and you know, back then I was looking at things like, you know, a lot of the early stuff that Google put out, like Gmail, um, uh, Google Maps. Um, you know, was a, a pretty big follower of Thirty Seven Signals, which was one of the very few well-known tech companies based in Chicago. Um, and so I, I quickly realized, like, the type of things I want to build are complex, and a lot of that complexity is in the backend and the server, and that stuff I just don't understand at all. And if, if like, I'm going to build, have my whole career in, in building software, I have to understand that. So I went deep into this kind of backend. A programming um, rabbit hole. And as I was graduating college, I asked myself, like, where can I go to learn the most about this side of, of building product, the more backend server side infrastructure? Because that is where I had the biggest gap. And that led me to finding Braintree. Like, I, I, I definitely was not like uh, personally interested in payments at that point. And I actually remember when I was interviewing at Braintree, I asked them, like, okay, so like, what are you guys going to build? Because you have a payment API now, like that's working. What's left? Um, which is really funny thinking back that like that was even a question I had. Um, but the but really what what drove me to Braintree wasn't payments. It, it was the the team and their just focus on high quality software engineering, um, which turned out to be a great decision and and something I just frankly probably got lucky on because I I learned just an immense amount there. That's where I met my co-founder Ali. Um he was part uh him and I were part of the I think there was seven or eight of us on the engineering team when I joined. Um so we were both part of that early engineering team um and I just learned so much through there, but through it I like I I got to spend a lot of time with Braintree customers other developers building on the Braintree APIs. And it really made me fall in love with both kind of developer platforms and developer tooling and payments. Because I think payments, payments was so interesting because it's it's like it's one of those things that if it goes wrong, it's very, very bad. Um, but when it goes right, it needs to be like fully in the background. And there's just something about that that I I really liked. And I just also liked that we were really enabling these new type of businesses like we were we were enabling kind of new attempts at like what we now call things like software as a service or gig economy but like all those explorations wouldn't have been possible if there wasn't a very easy to use flexible payment system supporting it yeah and is that um sort of what you're getting at is about like i can pay you um through a dongle on my cell phone right with a card that kind of thing is, is it yeah i mean like, we, we didn't we we didn't work as much in the like the card present to use like a fintech term um which is what, what like square really innovated in but a lot of the a lot of the design choices we made at branch in the early days um clearly went on to inspire other companies like stripe and between stripe and braintree you know i think probably almost all the like uh like innovative payments related services that we all now love like uber airbnb lyft etc all came out of braintree and stripe um so so yeah yeah uh, cool and then uh, tell me about your transition from braintree going to venmo yeah um 
so when I, I had been at Braintree for about five years, um, I was, I spent, um, the majority of my time working on our like API and external developer experience and, and uh, like how, how merchants would integrate and add Braintree features and all that. Um, and then the, the, as I kind of wrapped that up, I was, I wanted to get more involved in consumer. And so I, I led, a. Uh, a, like kind of a skunk works team that was exploring kind of new frontiers in payments. And the things that we were looking at was um, social payments. So we were seeing, um, we were getting a lot of actual inbound from most of the major social networks and, and similar apps about how they could start facilitating payments directly, you know, in their news feed or in their messaging um, apps. Uh, and that, that led me to start to think bigger than just, payments but about what we at the time called commerce where like if you think about you know a payment like a payment is is usually the last step of a very long funnel from like you know the full checkout process to the discovery like you know product discovery process etc um and i thought like what i got really excited about was like hey can we broaden our aperture as at braintree can we start to support um, helping businesses not just with payments, but with customer acquisition, with discovery, all of that. Um, a lot of those experiments didn't end up going anywhere. We did ship some pretty cool stuff with Facebook and Pinterest, but none of it got real volume. But that just made me interested in like how, like where, how can we do more with payments than just the pure moving of the money? Uh, and I was expecting actually to leave the the organization altogether. But as I started to talk to folks, everyone was like, hey, you need to go talk to the team at Venmo, which um, one piece of history. So Braintree acquired Venmo in 2012. Then we collectively got acquired by PayPal um, in, uh, I think, 2014. So we were, we've been, Venmo and Braintree have been kind of linked for a while, but we pretty much let the, the teams operate independently even before we got acquired by PayPal. And then post acquisition of PayPal, we really got separated um, because Braintree really was um, PayPal was really divided between their more like business oriented services and offerings and their consumer oriented services and offerings. So Braintree and Venmo kind of fell on either side of that divide. Um, and so I, I hadn't really spent a lot of time at Venmo. Um, and, and as I kind of looked at the business, looked at the usage, it, it just was really remarkable. I mean, like I think Venmo was driving the vast majority of new user growth across PayPal globally, even though Venmo was only in the U.S. Um, uh, but in spite of like in, in even with all that going on, the actual internal team at Venmo was uh, had was uh, like I would describe it as like criminally underinvested in. Um, they had like sadly a fairly big exodus of their leadership team post acquisition. Uh, and they really hadn't filled that in both like strategically or from just like a team leadership perspective. So I saw it as it's just like a great opportunity, one, to kind of build my leadership skills and two, just like a, a phenomenal product opportunity where we have this app that has incredibly loyal, rabid fans that is is doing something really well today in P2P, but had a lot of opportunity to do more. Um, and that and that gave me a great opportunity to kind of push forward a lot of my thinking and thoughts on like commerce uh, and how we can do more than just payments. And that led to you know it, it expanding into the real world with the Venmo debit card uh, and and also starting to explore 
how can Venmo help users discover businesses um, through something that got released shortly after I left, um, which was called Business Profiles. Yeah, well, I wanted to ask you that, like, because if, if you're just um, facilitating payments between banks, um, as far as I'm aware, there, there are no fees that are added on. So how, did, how does Venmo make money through that? Yeah, uh, Venmo, um, for most of my time there and for most of its history, has, has lost an incredible amount of money. Um, so there, the, you're right that the like bank or ACH based payments, there is a very, very, very low fee. Like once you hit scale, you're paying fractions of a penny. So it's effectively free. Um, but the problem is about a third of payments on Venmo are actually funded with a debit card, which Venmo is then paying, you know, a roughly 1%. Uh, and then you layer on fraud on top of all that. And the end result is you're losing, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars annually. Um, so, so it was, it was a big problem. Um, like Venmo, uh, especially when I joined was, was like very unsustainable when it came to a business. Uh, and so we, you know, generating revenue wasn't a like nice to have. It was necessary for Venmo to continue to kind of exist in its current form. Did it start as like a loss leader kind of idea uh, or like how did, um, if it was never making money and then, you know, you're talking about costs on top of it, add to the fact, you know, that it's losing more money. What, what was the original idea um, or, or what made it attractive if that was going to be kind of the economic reality? So when we were independent and it's just brain tree. The strategy was, it was definitely a long-term strategy, but the vision was it having both sides of the network. Like if you have consumers and you have businesses, you have the ability to start to like do things like closed loop payments where you can completely cut out kind of all the like processors and payment networks and increase your margins. And it goes back to this idea of commerce. Like you can start to do things like um, user acquisition and, and command a much higher margin um, with businesses. So that was that was the overarching vision was, you know, payment processing on its own is a commoditized business. Like we need to have def like a defensible, differentiated um, set of features if we're going to really succeed long term. And we saw kind of consumer as the obvious path to that. I think when we when we joined uh, up with PayPal, I think that got a lot less clear. And I think the especially the the kind of gap in leadership at Venmo led them to kind of a, a like, uh, I think they, they weren't really sure what they wanted to do. I think when I joined, the primary focus was following in PayPal's footsteps, which is to do online payments. Like think like, you know, Venmo button at, at major websites to buy things yeah. with Venmo, yeah. um, which I think makes a ton of sense. Uh, and that product is doing great today. I think over the last year, I think it actually launched on Amazon, which was mind blowing to see. But I think when I joined, you know, Venmo was uh, every single user saw Venmo as a P2P app. And, and when you really dig in to user behavior and talk to users, what that actually means is it's like really more tied to real life. It's like most people are using Venmo when they're out for drinks, they're, you know, on a trip, things like that. Yeah, they're not totally. thinking it, about Venmo when they're online shopping. Yeah. It also had the, um, I guess the good fortune or, or like it became a verb, right? People would say, Hey, Venmo yes. me, you know, that's, that's uh that doesn't often happen. Google had the yes. same thing happen to it. So that's pretty cool. Um, that was one of the most compelling aspects about Venmo was this um, Venmo users. Like when you talk to them about like, what do you like about Venmo? 
a lot of the time they talk about how Venmo made money less awkward. Uh, and I almost think the reason Venmo became a verb, you know, I, I think some of it had to do with how great Venmo was, but also it was because people really don't like to talk about money. Um, you know, it's awkward to say, Hey, you know, you owe me $20 for, for drinks. Can you pay me back? It's, yeah. it's much less awkward to say, Hey, can you Venmo me for last night? Yeah. Um, and, and I think that that was a very uh, insightful thing for me and something I, I still kind of draw on a lot today, which is like, you know, money uh, and especially TradFi and FinTech require a lot of trust and there's a lot of emotion and like there it's, it's not, it's not black and white. And you really need to be thinking about how you're you're helping the user through that experience, not just keeping them like safe and like doing you know the 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 nuts and bolts of things. Um, yeah, yeah, I know the social um, aspect there is really interesting. I hadn't thought of that, but it is things can become kind of transactional, right? If I have to give my friend a twenty dollar bill, that seems kind of like kind of weird, or it's like you know. Um, whereas if you can abstract it out to Venmo or um, you know, you just send a request to your friends for splitting the check at a restaurant. You know, it's a lot, it's, it's like there's that, um, a layer there that kind of takes away that transactional feel to it, I think. Yeah, that's a, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Well, I think, I, and I don't know this for sure, but I think you might be one of the only guests I've ever had on here who has a patent. And this one <laughs> is called Systems and Methods for Authenticating a User Based on a Computing Device. <laughs> <laughs> What, uh, I think I might I might have a few patents actually. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, but, but I mean, it's w one thing I'll say just generally about patents, and then, then I'm happy to explain this one specifically. I it, I had very mixed feelings about it. I think um, when you're at a publicly traded company like PayPal, um, you're kind of forced to do things like this just to protect yourself. At least that was that was how we thought about it uh, inside PayPal. So. Um, yeah, I, I, I again, I have, I have very mixed feelings about it in general, but the uh, it, it was it was for for a, a legitimate reason. I think that patent you're talking about um, was we were a, a, a lot of what we were trying to do in the like mid 2010s at Braintree was we were dealing with something we called internally the NASCAR problem, which we were seeing this huge proliferation of of payment methods that businesses were putting in their checkout. Um, like this was, you know, like Apple pay, Google pay, um, uh, Visa has built a number of different alternative payment methods over the years. So Amex like built some. Car that's covered with exactly. advertisements from a million and different places. Yeah, exactly. And like the thing it, it, what, what's hard is there was pretty good data that the, like adding payment methods does improve the conversion of the experience but for an end user if you're you know you, you have to look through a list of like like 10 different options of pay methods like that sucks and it's especially bad because a lot of them you probably don't even have an account at uh, so it just doesn't even make sense to show you and so what we were what we were building at braintree was a way to kind of keep track of users preferences and like, suggest pay methods that we thought were most applicable to this user um which I, we, that never translated into like the, or that vision never quite translated into what we shipped. Um, but it was definitely a, a, a fun exercise thinking through yeah. how we might do it. You mentioned earlier that you didn't get into crypto until about 2021-ish. Um, but obviously you're in the payment space um, for all of that decade prior to that. And Bitcoin, you know, kind of reached, um, you know, some sort of 
cultural consciousness um, among folks, you know, probably 2013, 2014. So, and then Ethereum, you know, came around in, in 2015, 2016. Um, wh- what were your thoughts on, on crypto at that point as you're in the payment space and doing all this? Did you, uh, I'm just curious, like what, what was your yeah. first reaction to it? So we, uh, a lot of us at Braintree and myself um, were very aware of crypto from from early on. Like I think even in 2011, I think a lot of us were um, like, you know, for fun, building our own implementations of Bitcoin miners, like talking through the Bitcoin white paper. So from a from a pure technology standpoint, and it, uh, like at that time, I think a lot of us at Braintree were very interested in distributed systems uh, and the theory behind it. So there was... I, I was very engaged more on the academic side of crypto, um, but I, you know, it was especially back then. It was so early, so unproven that it was kind of I would describe it more as like a toy or, or something that we were just kind of um, playing around with. Um, fast forward to um, twenty fifteen, and like going back to this like this idea of that like NASCAR problem. One of the things that we were thinking about then was like, okay, we have a framework to kind of allow businesses to um, have their user pay them using a lot like a variety of different payment methods without having to deal with the complexity of each payment method. Um, We had Apple Pay, we had Google Pay, we had PayPal, we had card-based payments. And and we were asking ourselves, like, what else should be here? Uh, And and we started talking to actually Coinbase back then. And we're like, hey, could we could we add we had crypto as a, as a form of payment. And so we actually worked with the early team at Coinbase. I think this was maybe 20, late 2015 uh, and launched a like merchant payment option um, with Coinbase then. So um, definitely have uh, experience from back then. But after that, I think, and especially during the 2017 period, I was not deeply involved in crypto. So I had more of that like outsider point of view. And back then it, it, um, it looked fairly scammy, uh, and I and I think especially a lot of the like um, other Web two or TradFi companies that are adding crypto were adding it in such a surface level way that it just felt very much like a cash grab or more of like a, a stunt. Yeah, that PR it, 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 stunt. It, it like I, I there was a a big debate inside PayPal about crypto that was going on then, and there was a lot of of pressure for crypt, for Venmo to support crypto. Uh, and I was very vocally against it because at the time I was like, okay, like I don't see the fundamentals here. Like for the most part, this looks a little bit sketchy. And a lot of the examples of, of other like pure services and apps that have done this have done it in a way that I find to be, you know, just not great for the end user. So I, I was, I was very against it. Uh, I, I think, you know, um, since then when I, when my, especially when my co-founder kind of kept bugging me to go to like look closer at crypto uh i you know got into ethereum understood smart contracts really started to get this idea of like this is not just about like a new currency this is about a new foundation and infrastructure for the internet um i got a lot more excited um and i think uh, the the other thing that that definitely helped was what really pushed me to leave venmo was i a lot of what Venmo was trying to do as I was leaving, and, and a lot of this seems to have continued, is is move more into financial services. Because I think one of the things you realize in P2P-based businesses is there's, uh, I would probably grossly simplify the people who use P2P services into two big groups. 
um, young people uh, and people who are who are poor um, and don't have money and need to split bills and need to kind of coordinate with their friends and family to make purchases. Mm-hmm. And the that second group, it's like it, it highlights a much bigger problem, which is like even in the U.S., like one of the wealthiest countries on earth, there is a pretty big uh a big population of people that just do not have access to financial services. Um, and, uh, you know, this, a lot of people in fintech will describe this as like banking the unbanked or increasing, you know, financial accessibility. Uh, and it's not, you know, this is not unique to Venmo. This is something that I think the industry has been really working on for a long time. But the more I looked at how, how we would do it, what, like how we would, what would we have to do to get there? It just, it was, depressing um like meaning like there was there's just so much red tape to cut through so much of the infrastructure really makes this problem worse where like a lot of the attempts to give financial services to you know to people who need it ultimately result in taxing them um like the one of the features that i launched when i was at venmo that was transformative from a business perspective um, uh, was instant cash outs. So the ability to take money out of your Venmo account and move it into your bank account instantly. Um, we, like most of the industry, charged a fee for that. Um, and it was, it was and probably is still one of the biggest revenue drivers for Venmo. Uh, but it, it, just, it just felt wrong to me because it was the people who actually need that feature are people who literally can't wait three days to get money into their bank account. And, and like those are those people who where money matters. It's like we're basically taxing them. We're we're asking them to pay a one one point five percent fee just to get their own money. Yeah. Um, and it's like, well, it's great that that turned into a you know like hundred plus uh, million dollar revenue business within the first twelve months. It just felt wrong from from like my mission and goal as like helping people with software. Uh, and so like that, that's what caused me when I left Venmo, I, I took a break from fintech and I actually went into, uh, education technology, but I think the, I, I, I still had a soft spot for solving this financial inclusion problem. And once I, I better understood smart contracts, blockchains, all that whole ecosystem, it was like a, oh, wow, there's finally like light at the end of the tunnel. Like we have a lot of work to do as an industry to get to the place where we could start giving people, you know, banking services via crypto. But I think we can get there. Uh, and, and that's what I get excited about. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree. It's a, also just a so much cleaner um, system, um, like you're saying, with, with like very few fees. Um, well, I, I just wanted to say, uh, you, you're mentioning Venmo and, and their uh, crypto. Like, I, I, I'm not saying this is, this is anything you did, but I do think the Venmo crypto... Um, product that they rolled out is not that great. I mean, you don't even really own your crypto there and you can't sell it once you have it. And so I don't know who's making decisions over there, but as as far as I know, what what they've done is is really kind of clunky. But then like getting back to um, Mezzo, you you had mentioned um, your co-founder and you, you know, looked around and, you know, you were both deep in the payment space and you, you, there were other folks who were trying to help, you know, with the onboarding, getting your fiat into crypto, but they didn't have the fintech um, experience that you guys did. So, 
What were some of the lessons that you guys applied to that uh, with Mezzo and, and how are you hoping to, you know, make it a lot easier for folks to just, you know, turn their dollars into Bitcoin or Ether? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I think two big things come to mind. I think the first is like risk, um, which is like, you know, preventing fraud, preventing crime um, is one of, if not the number one problem to solve. I think if you can do risk management well, everything else gets uh, infinitely easier. And a lot of what I see across the kind of on-ramping and centralized exchange ecosystem today, I, I see as products making the decision to push the problem of risk management onto the user. Like making me wait 10 days to take my money off Coinbase is basically managing risk at my expense, at the expense of my experience. And that's just not okay. Um, there's lots of ways to solve that, but it requires building and architecting the system and the data you capture and how you use that data um, you know, very well. So I think the one big part of it is we, and we've invested very heavily in, into risk management so that we can try to be as flexible and non-intrusive as possible. I mean, I think there's, um, uh, there's a, a wealth of data that is available on chain. And I think a lot of what our focus is at, at Mezzo right now, especially considering just where we're at in the market, being kind of in the depths of the bear market, we really want to focus on being the best way for crypto natives to move money on and off chain. Um, obviously, we are excited and we are building towards a future where we can onboard billions of new users to crypto. Um, but that's not happening yet. And, and I think the, the products that I, the products and platforms and services that I think will eventually onboard the next billion users are going to be the ones that are embraced and used today by the, the kind of passionate crypto native population we have today. Yeah, no, and so, I get that. It's, it sounds smart because you're going to, you're trying to appeal to a group who's already had a bunch of issues getting money on and off, right? So they know exactly. how hard it is and what a pain in the ass it is. But now you can be like, no. Tremezzo and see how, how much easier we've made it. And, and I think the other advantage we have with that population is most of them have a rich um, history on chain. And like that data, like especially, you know, like wallet age, like which protocols they've interacted with, et cetera, um, we think is a great way to, to manage risk and, and hopefully minimize what other kind of off-chain data we need from the end user. Um, like, you know, the, uh, things like KYC, uh, the actual regulation behind KYC is, is very open for interpretation. Like there are many ways you can know your customer. It is not prescribed outside of a few specific circumstances, what you have to do to do that. And so like, I, uh, my like long-term vision is like, can we get to a world where, especially when we're talking about lower dollar amounts, can we do that with like transparent KYC? Where like if you connect your wallet and we're able to through, you know, maybe it's future decentralized identity protocols or just a, a, a diversity of on-chain activity, can we use that to feel comfortable that we know who you are, we know you're not a bad actor uh, and, and can do business with you? Like I think that that is, is, is one thing that I would love to get to. But I think risk is the one part of it. I think the other big part of, of what we're trying to do is um, build for for global usage. Um, I think 
crypto is so fascinating coming from fintech because it's global by default. Like, you know, like when I talk to um, teams building wallets or, or decentralized exchanges or just different crypto apps, and I ask, you know, like what regions matter to you, where are users coming from? Most of the time I get an answer of like everywhere, like, you know, like yeah. we or like we might not even know. It's just like we, we get we get we, we just get users from everywhere. Um, and that's very incompatible with the world of, of TradFi. Um, there's a lot of on and off ramps that claim to be, you know, hey, we're, we're accepted. We're, we can accept customers in 120 plus countries. But the reality is every uh, or almost all on ramps who say that what they really are saying is we can accept Visa and MasterCard based payments from, uh, you know, across the world. Most of the world or many regions of the world don't use cards. So like, yeah, like supporting Visa and MasterCard payments in, in some country is somewhat valuable, but if only 2% of the population use Visa and MasterCard there, what have you really solved for? So the real way to solve for international payments is local payment methods. Um, and so like every region is going to have a whole a set of payment methods that the consumers there prefer. And so what we're, bu- we're building, and a lot of this is what we learned from building Braintree, is how to kind of abstract that well and how to set up our infrastructure and our platform such that adding, you know, hundreds of alternative payment methods over time isn't going to stress the system or or make it more complicated for the end user or for the developer looking to integrate our services. You reminded me of what you said about when you were at Venmo and you were talking to regulators a lot and they wanted you to KYC every customer, but you said no we're good enough in the background here where we we have good fraud detection and we have suspicious activity detection to the point where we don't need to do that. And it sounds like you're you're taking that approach and bringing it to Mezzo where everything's going to be in the background so that the um the the risks uh that you're talking about can be I guess assessed a lot more quickly and you don't have to wait that three to 10 days to get your, your coins off of Coinbase or whatever. Is it, am I kind of getting that correct? Yep. That's exactly right. And I think, it, I mean, the, uh, the other big part of that outside of waiting time is fees. Um, the actual, like my, I, I, there's no question in my mind that we as an industry need to find a way to make on and off ramping free. Like that is going to be, necessary for crypto to have the impact um, we think it should have. Um, the big, there are many ways in terms of just the raw processing of, of fiat payments that you can, you can get close enough to free, the, but the problem that's to solve after that is, is risk. Um, and so this is why you, it's like you kind of like right now, you, your choices are between a rock and a hard place. It's like you can go to a centralized exchange and wait days to get your coins or you can go to an on-ramp and pay an exorbitant fee. Uh, and so it's like neither option makes sense to me. I see both as as like band-aids and, and not really solving the root problem. Now, I find that really interesting that you guys are um, aiming at crypto natives, people who are already in the space. Um, what do you think, like a couple questions here, what, we, we're still in a pretty bad crypto winter. Do you see signs of that changing right now? And then what... Do you have any, um, are you hoping to see something in the future where you would then know that, okay, this is becoming a lot more broadly accepted and then there are a lot more people coming into the space? Yeah, um, I think the, 
this is my first crypto winner. So it's like hard or I, I don't really trust myself to know, like, are we seeing signs of life or not? You're I such mean, a our, baby. <laughs> I, I, I mean, our, our, uh, one of the things that worked out well is we, we raised for Mezzo um, uh, right at the top of the last bull market. And I think we did that with kind of full knowledge that like, we're probably going to have another bear market. And like, we want to make sure that we have the funding to kind of get through that. Um, and that's the situation we're still in. So in many ways, we're kind of ignoring it. And we're, we're just focused on building ourselves and working with other builders. And it, the, the, I, I have, you know, the bear, I don't even know how, when we want to consider the bear market started or not, but it is, uh, you know, every day I feel like I'm wa- watching, talking to, interacting with new projects, exciting builders. So that's what gives me confidence that like we're still on a good path. I think the things that I am especially kind of paying attention to is, um, and this is almost like, I feel like cliche at this point, but like smart contract wallets and account abstraction. Um, I, I'm in this uh, to scale self-custody. Like I think one of the, one of the things that was interesting when we were fundraising is we definitely encountered a, a pretty big group of VCs that seems to believe that like there, there was pretty likely what was going to happen is you were going to have these big centralized players be custody providers and like users won't self custody. Uh, and to me like that, it, it just feels like we're f- the throwing the baby out with the bathwater, like the self, like self custodial in, uh, uh, encryption keys, it, like getting that to scale, I think is going to change the world almost as much as blockchains will change the world. Uh, you can't so be your it own is bank a, if you don't control exactly. your wallet. Yeah, that's exactly. totally antithetical to the whole movement here. I think. Yeah, and so that's the uh, that is what we are building towards at Mezzo. It's like we really we like our the customer in our mind is an external wallet. Like we don't have control over it, and we don't want control over it. Um, and so the we're really excited about that. But at the same time. Like if, if I had a friend, like especially a non-technical friend or family that was like, hey, I want to get involved in crypto, I would have a very hard time telling them to set up a self-custodial wallet because I know how unsafe it is uh, and how much can go wrong. I think smart contract wallets um, in many ways feel like the path forward. Um, and I think we've seen huge so breakthroughs of the last 12 months the difference. Like yeah. what, is, what is the difference with a smart contract wallet versus a, a custodial wallet? So in, in most blockchains, um, and I'll just talk um, from the perspective of Ethereum to make this easy, but they, you have two types of accounts on a blockchain. There are externally owned accounts or often um, referred to as EOAs. These are like self-custodial keys. This is like the, the encryption, like there's an, a public and private key pair that is yeah. external to the blockchain. Yeah, so and then there's MetaMask, con- my MetaMask wallet. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. A MetaMask would be an EOA. Uh, and then there are like smart contracts, which don't have a key pair because they are only on the blockchain. Um, smart, con- like uh, externally owned accounts, there are very kind of rigid authentication and authorization requirements that are encoded into the blockchain itself. So like how a signature is verified, what, it, what uh, how a signature is generated are all um, set and like set in stone. Yeah, we can think of it that way uh, in the blockchain. A smart contract is code. So you can do anything with a smart contract. So the concept of a smart contract wallet is saying, what if instead of holding your actual tokens and value 
in an externally owned account, we instead move that into a smart contract and let the smart contract create, um, like implement whatever logic the user wants to handle authentication and authorization of how to move um, those assets. And so like the early example of a smart contract wallet would be a multi-signature wallet like Gnosis Safe, where you can say, well, you know, this wallet to move any money in this wallet, we need two of three keys to sign, um, which which significantly increases security. Um, So that uh, like smart contract wallets, especially over the last 12 months, I think the big focus is, all right, how do we take this from like a very, you know, specific thing like a multi-sig wallet and expand it to be like an infrastructure that can be used for kind of any kind of wallet, whether that's for a business or a consumer. Um, and, and we're seeing teams explore things like giving users the ability to authorize or interact with their wallet using an off-chain authentication method, like social login from like a, a, uh, like a TradFi provider like Google or Apple, um, or just other means of authentication. Um, okay. And then the, the big advantage I see there is now you have a path to do things like recover accounts, um, rotate keys, introduce security policies where like, you know, maybe you can, you know, very easily and seamlessly move money as long as it's under $1,000. And if it's over $1,000, then you need elevated security practices. Yeah, that's cool. So it's, it's really a question of flexibility and um, like customization. Um, Okay, Ben. Um, for so tell people, uh, Mezzo is. Are you still in a wait list period, or what? What's the latest on on getting people yeah. um, onboarded? So we are going to be launching for end users um, later this month. Uh, we um, you can follow us on Twitter at uh, Mezzo underscore Network, um, or I guess I should say X now, which feels very weird. Yeah, I'm not going to um, do that. Uh, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> um, the, but so you can follow us there. We'll be posting updates um, hopefully the next week or two um, on more details of how to get access to our, our, um, our initial user launch. Um, but the, the, the real game for us is our SDK and our platform. And so we're, we're in conversations with a number of crypto teams right now about integrating um, our SDK and expect to kind of um, start to roll that out um, this fall. Okay. That's excellent. Um, ben, thank you so much for the deep dive in payments and uh, just you know sharing your story with me and uh, good luck uh, with everything uh, with Mezzo. And as I said at the top, I think you know this is definitely one of the more um, important areas to get right for folks because it is a pain in the ass to, to try to move money in and out of crypto systems. So uh, Godspeed to you and thanks a lot for being here. Thanks, Matt. It was great to talk. That's it for this episode. Thanks for joining us, and don't forget to rate and follow this show on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music. Decent People is a production of Decentral Media. It is produced by Matt Bogart, with music by Brian Duncan and Kareem Imes. 